Happy Father's Day. Thank you. It's my second one. And uh, yeah, Happy Father's Day to all of you dads. Uh, if you have not called your dad yet, won't you go ahead and do that after the service? Um, we're going to move on to James chapter 2. Uh, we're going to talk just the first the 13 verses of James chapter 2. And uh, this is about partiality. Well, growing up was just not really easy on me with a name like Albert. Um, especially since I was a bit on the pudgy side. Um, you know... What do you expect when your mom uh, feeds you a drumstick, a hot dog, and a hard-boiled egg since the age of one for breakfast? And my mom used to force-feed me, eat more, eat more, you're too skinny, you know? And I was such a fat baby that the pediatrician made my mom put me on a diet. She was like, your, your baby needs to go on a diet. And, um, but that, did that stop her? No way. No way. She was determined to have a sumo wrestler in the family. And I remember my parents taking me to the, to the department store and asking the clerk, uh, where's the husky section? Oh, no. More like, where's the husky section? And, and I thought it was cool as a young kid, right? Because, you know, huskies are cool. They're tough. You know, they're awesome dogs. I was like, wow, that, that describes me. I'm cool, you know? And, and as I got older and I got bigger, you know, Husky just wasn't cool anymore. And, you know, I really never had a self-confidence problem, even with my girth. Um, but as many of you know, children are evil. And they want to make sure you don't have any self-confidence. Not even an ounce of it. So the trump card for all my peers and classmates while growing up was that. What she said. Hey, 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 it's bad, Albert. Right? And, you know, they weren't lying. And what was I going to say? No, I'm not. Well, I have a drumstick in my hand, a hot dog, and a hard-boiled egg. You know, what was I going to say? I was. I was. And when the kids decided to be mean that way and excluded me from things like playing with them, you know, that, that hurt me. And have you experienced being excluded? What happened? How did that make you feel? And I was sad. I was mad. I was angry. It made me hate. But then came puberty. Fifth grade Albert was fat no more. No more shopping in the husky section for that boy. Hey, 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 fat Albert was no more. It was, hey, 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 it's Albert? Half of him. And I started wearing parachute pants that actually didn't look tight on me when I breakdanced, right? And there was an interest in girls and girls having an interest in me, so fifth grade was actually pretty awesome. But then at times I was guilty of being the mean kid. Not often, but sometimes, and I started excluding others. Have you excluded others? How did that make you feel? It made me feel powerful. It made me feel dominant, but it still made me hate. And some people are shown 
favoritism, what types of people are given preferential treatment? You can think of some of these. The powerful, the popular, the rich. And we know it's not right to show favoritism towards certain people and others. Why is it done? Why is it done at church? And many churches struggle with this issue because it's just a common social issue that all societies deal with. And the, the Bible addresses real problems and real issues we face, and it addresses this one in our text today. We will be dealing with the issue of partiality and how it relates to the question of good works. Verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. I shared in the past couple of weeks, James is addressing those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And in this address, he's telling us not to show favoritism in the family of God. We are to be different than most organizations or social gatherings. And we have a glorious Lord in Jesus Christ, so why would we have to show favoritism? God himself does not discriminate. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Acts 10, 34, God shows no partiality. God doesn't discriminate, so neither should those of us who put our trust in Him. But that's really easier said than done, isn't it? It's a, actually a difficult thing to do. It's just part of our social structure, structure to be a respecter of persons. People often introduce themselves as, Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, right? And sometimes it's because of self-worth or some may feel they are worth more if they have more education or more money or more anything. But doesn't worth really depend on who's asking the question? If you were to ask a banker, how much is Albert worth? He'd laugh first, but then he'd give you some monetary figure. And then it'll be some finite number, right, based off of my assets and my liabilities. But if you were to ask my spouse or children, how much is your husband worth? How much is daddy worth? There isn't a price. Right, honey? <laughs> or if you ask my two-year-old right before I leave for work and she's pleading, don't go, stay, I don't want you to go to work. There's no amount of money that will make her trade that emotion for that. Maybe an episode of Little Rascals, but not money. And if you ask my newborn, She'll just spit up on you. So in the price, the, the price is priceless. And in the eyes of God, every person is priceless. And your value is greater than just your economic worth. Okay, why is James even bringing this issue up? Well, because this is what the church was dealing with. James was writing to a very partial crowd. They were filled with prejudice, discrimination based off of class, race, religious background, dietary practices. And back in that time, it was common for people to be permanently labeled as a Gentile or Jew, free or slave, poor or rich, whatever. And one of the many awesome things about Jesus is that he didn't stand for this stuff. He didn't stand for this nonsense. And Jesus' position was to break down the walls that divided humanity. Jesus was heaven-bent to unite humanity in Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14-15, through 15, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Remember that this is Jesus' half-brother talking to us. Someone who grew up as an eyewitness to what was happening in the synagogues that he and his family attended all of his life. And James was raised in religion and was someone who remembered what happened in the synagogues in, regard, in regards to listening and doing. He remembered observing synagogues and how they practiced partiality. He also remembered how his older brother, Jesus, didn't stand for it. How Jesus was punk rock by standing up to those in high places and sitting down with those in low places. Equality. That was a revolutionary idea. The early church was shocking in the ancient world. How can a poor guy and a rich man be united? How can a woman be given as much recognition as a man? How can God love a slave and a free man the same? How can a Jew and Gentile fellowship together in the open? Maybe in private, but openly proclaim brotherhood to acknowledge that there is love between one another? No way. This was revolutionary. You know, things that we might take for granted now, but back then, that was not the case. And Christians in the name of religion have done some asinine things in the name of equality. And Christians who are truly following the heart, mind, and soul of Lord Jesus, you know, those guys have really done some awesome things. And Jesus was counterculture. He was radical. Think about the Jesus who's, who we serve and associate with. Think about back in the Bible to a couple of stories here. A Samaritan woman at the well. That was a double whammy. She was a woman and a Samaritan. In that culture, a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. And the Samaritans were a group of people that the Jews just kind of like didn't associate with. They thought they were above them. Tax collectors treated as traitors. Their own race didn't accept them. Christ did. Lepers ostracized, made to yell, unclean, unclean, if they were anywhere within the vicinity. Jesus touched them. And there are so many more examples of how Jesus crossed that barrier, of that equality barrier. But you get the point, right? Jesus motivated Christians, His disciples, to do something in the face of inequality. Sojourner Truth, African-American women fought for women's rights. William Wilberforce, English statesman, ended the slave trade in England. Hannah Moore, English woman who developed the Sunday school movement, which led to the literacy and education of boys and girls across England, later came to America so that not only the privileged would receive an education. And it was Christians in the name of Jesus that did that. Disciples of Jesus. And again, I can go on and on, but you get the point. And equality didn't come naturally to the early church. They didn't come together without any glitches. The apostles had to teach the early church about partiality, about discrimination. 
And in the previous chapter, we talked about the importance of doing. James addressed that and how important it is to listen and to do. And James is sharing with us the struggles of the early church. That not only did they have a problem with actually doing the Word, but they also had a problem of who to direct that to. So let's see how that's practiced. Verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and saying, say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? They gave preferential treatment to those who dressed well, had some bling going on, right? Bling then was the same bling as now. It showed that you had some money. And in the Roman society, the, the wealthy wore rings on their left hand, kind of Liberace style, right? It was like just to show off. And uh, in fact, in Rome, they had these shops where you could rent jewelry for these special occasions. Same thing happens nowadays, except it's not just your left hand, right? It's your ears, your neck, your fingers, your wrists, your mouth. And in fact, there are shops where you can rent jewelry for special occasions. I have a cousin who's a policeman. has been hired out to be a bodyguard for, for jewelry when celebrities would rent it for you know different red carpet events. And so these companies would rent the jewelry out, but in order to rent the jewelry out, you have to hire my cousin. And so he's very expensive. And yes, I come from a family of ninjas. And the funny thing is that he was hired to protect the jewelry, not the person, right? He's, he's like, I don't care what you do with Jason Timberlake or whatever his name is, but don't touch the jewelry, right? And so back, back to verse 2, okay? Verse 2. It's interesting in that it helps give us a background of what happened back then, okay? The word assembly in the ancient Greek is literally synagogue. A synagogue is the name of a meeting place for Jews, James calling a Christian meeting place a synagogue showed that, shows that his writing was before Gentiles were widely accepted into the church. So at the time of James' writing, most Christians were coming from a Jewish heritage. Verse 3 tells us that the Christians at the time had the rich sit in esteemed places while having the poor sit or stand wherever, whatever was kind of left open. And James knew that this type of discrimination had no place with Christians. Do we practice favoritism in our church? Among school children, favoritism is shown to the popular kids, the skinny kids. But among adults, the greatest temptation is often to show partiality towards the rich. Often people cater to them and often aspire to be one of them. And many sell their souls to join those ranks. And not saying that riches in themselves are evil, but there are dangers. They can become our God, a false God. And notice that when we follow false gods, we start to mistreat people. And we wind up judging people with evil thoughts. And for us, it may be a little different. I think we actually show partiality to the poor, which is still wrong. However, however we show that partiality, whether towards the poor or the rich, makes the mistreated people group not want to be a part of what we actually represent. Jesus. 
And discrimination hurts people, and it's a carnal way of thinking. And we don't treat the poor better than the rich or the rich better than the poor. We just treat them equally. And oftentimes we focus so much on serving the poor, which really I think is good, and I think the Lord tells us to do it, but sometimes I feel we neglect the rich who need Jesus just as much. And as we're looking for ways to serve the poor, shouldn't we be looking for ways to serve the rich as well? And if we don't, aren't we showing partiality towards the poor? And some may think that we don't have anything to offer the rich like the poor. Really? Aren't you just thinking in terms of economics then? You know, the, the rich need Jesus. They have marriage problems. Their kids have problems. They have problems at work. They have the same problems as anyone else. The question is, how can we engage them in those things? Now, we're in a relatively less prosperous area in Oakland, and I think we should stay true true to that. And the poor are right at our doorstep, so we should serve them. But what about at your workplace or your school or just acquaintances? Your wealthy friends or coworkers? They need Jesus. And they have problems like anyone else, so they need prayer. A simple thing to do is ask how you can pray for someone. You know, when I worked in the financial world, I knew some pretty rich cats. Some of them had jets. Some of them had yachts. Very few of them had Jesus. Not one of the people I worked with ever turned down prayer. Never. And you'll be surprised to find out the things going on in their life if you just ask them how their marriage was, how their kids were, how work was. And then as you hear those things, you can ask to pray for them. And you know, it's I've always had it well received. Always. And you start there and then you ask the Lord for more direction and He'll answer and He'll provide counseling opportunity or He'll provide other avenues to reach that person. So what's wrong with discrimination anyway? Well, this isn't an all-inclusive list, but I'm going to mention three. Discrimination shows that we care more about the outward appearance more than we do about the heart. That's not what God does. God looks at the heart and He sees the faith and the trust that is there. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so should we. Discrimination shows that we misunderstand how God sees people. When we assume that the rich are more important or blessed by God, we've mistakenly put too much value in material riches. Discrimination shows how selfish we are. In the case of the poor versus rich, we usually favor the rich person over the poor because we believe we can get something from that rich person. He can do favors for us that the poor can't. But this can go the other way around too or with any other type of circumstance. Perhaps with the poor, you're not wanting something material, but you're wanting some recognition. And we are selfish in thinking that we will be able to get something from someone whom we favor over another person. And we have to be careful how we see people. We have to look at people through the eyes of God. Remember that Judas appeared to be much better equipped for ministry than Peter. Judas was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry. And you know, none of the disciples really expected that he was the one that betrayed Jesus. 
Verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Verse 5 is a rhetorical question telling us that the poor are especially chosen of God to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom of God. And you know, I, I believe this to be absolutely true. If you've ever served people who are poor in the eyes of society, you'll, you'll also notice that they're rich in their faith. And I remember working in refugee camps in Southeast Asia that all they had to live off was the, the white rice and fish sauce. And their faith was just absolutely amazing. They had nothing, but their faith was glaringly apparent. And it's easy for people to be partial to the rich, but God isn't partial to them. In fact, since riches tend to be an obstacle to the kingdom of God, there's this sense that it's the poor who are blessed by God. Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How is it that the poor are chosen to be rich in faith? Well, they simply have more opportunities to exercise their trust in God. They have to rely on their faith and the hope and the glory God will provide them in the future. And they don't have much materially to rely on. Unlike the rich who find it harder to trust because they rely on their riches. There are just simply fewer obstacles for the poor. And look at church history. It's a pretty clear picture that more poor people have received the gospel than rich. Even at the present time, just look at the developed countries compared to the least developed countries. Who's responding to the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You know, I believe that we're all called. The, the our called at the end of that verse was added to the translation to give a better understanding of the verse. But according to the original verse, not many who are wise according to the, to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble will heed the call because those obstacles in realizing that there's a need for God are there. And many of you see this all the time, especially those of you who have attended great places of higher education like Cal. Many of the in intellectual elite believe that a belief in God is beneath them, that they're too smart to rely on such a crutch, and that only those who have that kind of faith, they're just not smart enough to see that uh, there's no God. You know, science can answer everything for us. Our intellect can reason things out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 follows with, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The people who aren't too rich, aren't too smart, aren't too powerful, or too above themselves, don't have as many obstacles getting in the way of believing in God. And let's look at the obstacle the rich young ruler had in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 25. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing, 
Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was a very rich man. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let's go back to verse 6 in James chapter 2. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into their courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? You know, these verses are sharing with us that the rich are usually the ones that exploit us. That back then they were the ones who drug Christians into court, slandered the name of Jesus. That the rich often sinned against the Christians because of their love for money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And there are people who are rich and act like Christians, no doubt. I know some. This is not a slam against those of you who have money. In fact, a woman who discipled me in college was really wealthy. And she was hot, too. One of the hottest grannies I ever met. She was an old elderly lady. She took me in for two and a half years, just kind of like chiseling the tough exterior that I had because I didn't want to say much to her. For two and a half years, she met with me every week, asking me questions, trying to figure out more about me. And for two and a half years, I didn't say anything to her. But she kept meeting with me. And uh, after two and a half years, she couldn't get me to stop talking. But, but she used her resources to bless us college students. And because of the amount of money she had, she was able to not work and spend her time with us so that you know, she can invest in us. And when she wasn't with her husband or her grandkids or something, she was with us. And we had great times of fellowship at her home and at her cabin. And she let us use her ski boat and all this stuff. And it was great. And she was totally available to us. And she provided places of rest for us, of fun, to a bunch of poor college students. So if you're rich, you can use your resources to bless people and see how the Lord wants you to use your financial resources. Matter of fact, if you have money... Can we talk after service? Can we pick and choose the parts of the Bible, or God's words that we're going to obey? No. When we pick what parts of God's words we're going to obey and what parts we're not going to obey, we effectively put our will over God's will. And we've taken God's place. Verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What law is being broken when we show favoritism? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, when we show favoritism, we've sinned and we become lawbreakers. We are not showing the respect to the non-favored that God would wish us to show. And the Jews understood this, even though it wasn't always practiced. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. 
You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And James is reminding us that whomever you show favor towards is just as much a neighbor as the one we discriminate against. Verse 10 of chapter 2 in James, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And the point here is that if you break one law, you're basically breaking what God's will is, and so you're a violator of the law. And you can't pick and choose what to obey and what not to obey. You can't be moral in the sexual realm and then show favoritism and expect God to regard you as righteous. And James here is raising our awareness against selective obedience. Some of us are guilty of this. Some of us pick and choose which of God's commands we actually want to obey and which ones we'll ignore. You know, God's laws are His. It's not for you to pick which ones are for you. They all apply to you. You can't say, I agree with that murder stuff, but I like fornicating, so I'll keep that one. Verse 12, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law has liberty, but it's still a law that has to be obeyed and we, we are still judged by this law. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Back to James, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Funny thing about mercy and judgment, we often desire mercy for ourselves and judgment for others. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus also tells us in chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Some people have shown me that I really need to pray for them because I'm seriously fearful for them. And that the judgment you want to see on people, God, have mercy on you. And maybe you stand in judgment against someone pointing the finger and saying, you're a horrible human being. Look at what you've done. Look at all the chaos that you've caused. You know, other people might feel differently, but you, the one pointing the finger, you know it was wrong and that you should judge that person because you are able to discern like God. And you know what that actually means? That means that's the standard by which you're going to be judged. God have mercy on you. And seriously, brother, sister, if you're having that judgmental attitude, you need to stop. Your self-righteousness is self-condemning. Remember, the breaker of one law is a lawbreaker regardless of which law it is. Have you not broken a single law? Remember David? 
He had a lot of wives. He's talking on the roof and he sees a woman bathing. He lusted after her. He committed adultery with her. And a few weeks later, Bathsheba says, I'm pregnant. David sends for her husband Uriah. Uriah shows up and they start chit-chatting a bit. And uh, David encourages Uriah to go home and be with his wife. He's trying to cover up his sin. He didn't go home. He slept on David's porch. And in the morning, David gets the news. David tells him, What's up, man? Why don't you go home and be with your wife? Uriah tells him, I can't. And, he, and David says, uh, Viagra? Like, what, what's up? What do you need? And he's like, no, I, my pals, you know, they're out there fighting. And it just would be really dishonorable if I was to do that and they're out there risking their lives. I, I can't do it. So then David says, I, I need to get this guy drunk. Then that way I can kind of trick him to get back home and, and then that'll, that'll solve my problems. So he gets him drunk and he falls asleep on the porch. And so now David's like, nervous and frustrated. Like, what am I going to do? So he sends a command to his general, Joab, to put Uriah in the front line of the battle. And when the battle intensifies, pull back the support, let him get killed. Uriah is killed. Joab follows the commands that David sent. David gets the report and then, you know, he's relieved. He's like, oh, got away with that one. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And now he thinks he's okay. And actually, he's made out to look like a really noble person. Look at King David. What a noble man. He took in a widow, a pregnant widow. But then Nathan comes along. He says, hey David, um, there's this rich guy in your kingdom, has everything in the world, has a ton of sheep, herds of them, and he lives next to this poor guy with one ewe lamb. And this poor guy treated ewe lamb like part of his family. He slept with the lamb. He ate with the lamb like at the, at the table. Just treated him like one of the children, like my dog. And but when the rich guy came uh, and had some guests come over, he ordered his servants to take that poor guy's ewe lamb and kill it so that they can eat it together. David got really angry. And he told Nathan, that guy should be put to death. Nathan told, Nathan told him, you are that man. He had all these wives and you took your neighbors. And David was so quick to judge, thinking that he was a just man, that he knew what the judgment of the Lord should be, forgetting so quickly that he was a violator of the law. And if we show mercy, we will be shown mercy. And the measure of mercy we use is what will be used for us. And that's why it's dangerous to judge. Be careful. Where do you want the standard to be set when you're judged? Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now our hope of freedom from judgment depends on whether we give mercy to others. As people who will be judged by the law of liberty, we should always show mercy to others by abstaining from partiality. We will be judged according to the mercy we show others. And if we do not show mercy to others, neither will mercy be shown to us. And if we do show mercy, then 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James is relating another principle from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The way to show mercy to those we discriminate against is by giving them the same acceptance. Not more, just the same. And the same care we would show to people we actually favor. That's what God does with us. Are we discriminating against people? You know, let's not be partial in our actions. Let's be like Jesus who fought against discrimination. What ways can we stand up for those discriminated against? Not that we have to do something more. Just equal. You know, that's the dignified thing to do. No one wants to be a project. And where's the dignity in that when you kind of give somebody more? You know, if they were from a, a lesser point, you give them more. There's no dignity in that. It's just equality. And no one wants to be a charity case. So are we being merciful? Let's be people of mercy. God's the judge. No one is better at being a judge than God anyway. Right? Let Him do it. And you won't be disappointed at the outcome. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for revolutionizing the way we think. Things we take for granted now um, that Jesus helped set in motion, that Your disciples set in motion, that they accomplished. I pray, Lord, as You place those things on our heart as to the things we are supposed to fight against, that we would act upon those things. Last week we studied about listening and doing. And this week we study about who we direct that towards. God, may we be sensitive to your word and to do your word and to stand up for those injustices, those types of discrimination that are out there. In Jesus' name, amen.